You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Paragold, a church committed to making the real Jesus known to every man, woman, and child. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagold.com. Acts chapter 1 is where we are. I'm going to start in verse 1, and I'll read through verse 8. Luke is writing, and he says, In my first book, O Theophilus. You may know what Luke is talking about, and he says, In my first book. What book is it? Anybody? Yeah, very good. All right, the Gospel of Luke. Yeah, okay. So, um, in my first book, the Gospel of Luke, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You've heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And I love Jesus' response. He says, It's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. In other words, put up your end of times charts, okay? Like you can't know the end of times, when it's going to come. It's not for you to know those things, but he says, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Let's pray together one more time. Father, we need you. As we've been singing all morning, we, nobody got up this morning just to, to, to go through the motions. Or maybe we did because we just don't expect that you're wanting to do anything. I pray you'll shatter every expectation. I pray that you will meet us here in a way that we experience your presence in a tangible way. Take this word today, Holy Spirit, and drive it into our hearts. Conform us more into your image. Father, I pray that we will never be a church. It's just about what we're doing right here. As great as that is, I pray that you will bring about a transformation in us that moves beyond these walls into our city and our region and our country and our world for your glory. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Lance Armstrong. Uh, Tiger Woods. Uh, Michael Jordan. And Muhammad Ali. What do these four men all have in common? Uh, some might say superior athletes. Uh, some might say at one time they were the best in their sport. Uh, what I say to you is more importantly to that, according to the Enneagram report, what they all have in common is they all have the same personality as me. Okay? Um, which means, I believe, that, that probably, and at least what I told Adam I think that means, is that there's probably some untapped athletic ability inside of me that I still need to, to uncover. You've seen it, Randy, and, and unleashed before. And so, um, but what Adam has been reminding me is, no, Jared, that does not mean, the Enneagram report and, and you having the same personality as those guys, it doesn't mean that, that you win as much as those guys win. It just means that you want to win as much as those guys want to win. What it means is that you are a highly competitive individual. Now, if you've been around me before in the MC Olympics or anywhere else, you know this 
to be true. I'm competitive. I want to win, especially against Tim Parrott because he always wins. And so um, I'm a competitive guy. And so as you can imagine, when I decided to coach my daughter's six-year-old, five and six-year-old soccer team, my main goal was to destroy the competition. Um, which, by the way, yesterday we won 14 to 1. Yeah, so uh, good coaching. I didn't say that, but yeah, probably. And so, um, and by the way, Shauna James, I'm going to give you credit. And so, like, she's my assistant. She actually played soccer. I just like YouTube stuff. And so she actually knows how to play. And, uh, but anyways, that's my goal. My goal is to beat down every single team that we play. Now, some of you are like, Jared, it's five and six-year-old girl soccer. Shouldn't you just want to have fun? And I'm like, yes, and winning is fun. Amen? And so, um, unfortunately, though, despite the fact that, that, that I really want to win, we have not won every game. Now, uh, this has come to my dismay because I believe that as a coach that I can put together some of the best practices you have ever seen. I mean, I really put myself into these practices. I want to make sure the kids, we get the most out of whatever talent they have. On top of uh, putting together good practices, um, my missional community is rallied together and we provide snacks after every game to try to motivate the kids. Hey, you play good, you get a pre Sun, you know? And so, like, we try to motivate them with snacks. Uh, during half time, Luke can vouch for this. I will play We Will Rock You for our team to try to like motivate them. Like, come on, guys. Like, this isn't about, you know, just coming out here and kicking the ball. We're trying to win a game. And so, like, I motivate them. But what I've discovered so far in this short season is despite the fact that I feel like I should be able to motivate girls, motivating a girls soccer team to win games and actually getting them to win games is two totally different things. Now, if you watch us in the first half, I mean, we always kill it. I mean, we're doing really good in the first half, right, Shonda? But by the second half, by the third quarter, our girls are tired. Our girls are weary. Our girls are complaining. Our girls all of a sudden have stomachs that are hurting. Uh, they're asking, like, coach, please take me out. I don't want to run anymore. Like, I'd rather go sit on the sidelines and play in, in the game and actually be on the field. And as I began to think about that this past week, I thought, like, man... My daughter's five- and six-year-old soccer team, sadly, is a picture of many people in the church today. Of many people who maybe when they started following Jesus, man, they were passionate and they were excited and they were like, yes, I want to be on this mission. Yes, I want to get in the mission field. I want to, to go out and I want to be a part of what it is that Jesus has called us to be a part of. But however, the longer you follow Jesus, the more tired you have become. Maybe some of you even right now, you sit here weary you sit here exhausted, you find yourself complaining, you find yourself making excuses, and if you can be honest, though you would never say it out loud, you would rather be on the sidelines than in the field. And if that's you this morning, listen, I promise you, I do not want to guilt you in any way. Um, I believe that guilt does get results pretty quickly, um, but only grace transforms the heart. I am not after just trying to get you to do some stuff today. What I am after is to help you see how if you are someone who is here and you're just kind of sitting on the sidelines, you're not really engaging in the mission of God, then you are settling for a life, a life lesser than the life you were created for and called to experience from Jesus himself. And that's what we see actually right here in Acts chapter 1 verse 1. Where Luke says in my first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do. You might want to circle that word began if you write in your Bible. All that he began to do. Why did Luke use this word you think began? Why do you think that, that Luke didn't say, hey in my first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus 
did. Why did he say all that he began to do? Because what Luke wants us to see right here with this word began is that in his first book, the Gospel of Luke, it was all about Jesus, all about the work that, that, that the Spirit-empowered man began to do. And then the book of Acts is all about the work that he will continue to do through his now Spirit-empowered church. And so what Luke goes on to record here is how Jesus, before he ascends and goes back to be with his father, he says in verse 8, look, whenever I leave, because I want you to continue what I have started, he says, I'm going to send you my Holy Spirit. And I'm sending him for the purpose, not just so you can have some warm and fuzzies whenever you come and worship and, and raise your hands, but I'm sending you the Holy Spirit so that you can receive power and then be my witness, as he says in verse 8, in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and all the ends of the earth. Now, if you have read the book of Acts, you know this is the table of contents for the book of Acts. I mean, because what we see after this chapter is this small, ordinary group of men and women actually begin to, to, to be converted. They begin to hear the gospel and they begin to have their lives change. And we see Christianity go from just this handful of people to thousands of people in Jerusalem. But the message doesn't just stay there. We eventually begin to see the gospel spread, spread from Jerusalem down south to, to Judea and then up north to Samaria where Jews and Gentiles all begin to believe the gospel. And then the gospel would move forward to the ends of the earth so that people like you and me today can actually hear and know the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when you read the book of Acts, it's a very loud story. It's an incredible story. But what we have to understand is before any of that stuff unfolded, what Jesus says here is you need to receive the Holy Spirit. He says if you're going to have an impact in this world, you need to receive the Spirit. You need to be empowered by the same Spirit who empowered me to live the life that I Lived And so in Acts 2, if you look there in verse 1, just as Jesus promised, he sent his Holy Spirit. It says in verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And, and all of a sudden it says they had divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And look, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, one of the men who was there who was filled with the Spirit was a man by the name of Peter, who was a disciple of Christ. And if you know anything about Peter, uh, he was a kind of a timid guy. In fact, Jesus told him, hey, look, he says, before I die, you will deny me, Peter, three times. And Peter says, no, never. I'll never deny you, Jesus. I'll always stand up for you. But then Peter, scared of a little girl, true story, denies Christ. Right? He, he, he's afraid for his life, and he says, Oh, little girl, no, 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 I don't, I don't know Jesus. Denies Christ three times. Right, Timid man, scared man, but here we see he gets filled with the Holy Spirit. And if you keep reading in Acts 2, all of a sudden he is filled with this incredible amount of boldness. He has this new missional zeal. He stands up and he proclaims the gospel to a large group of people. And because he is now no longer just in his authority, but in the authority of Christ, look what happens in verse 37. It says, now the crowd heard the message that was being preached. And look, they were cut to the heart. When you begin to speak in the power of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit will use your words to cut people to their hearts. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? They hear the gospel 
They hear they can be saved, and they say, okay, you just tell us what do we need to do, and we will do it. And Peter could have said anything he wanted right here, but he says, if you look in verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and then you, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I love this. Peter, apostles, what do we need to do to be saved? Peter doesn't say, well, you got to try harder. Well, you got to just be better. Well, you got to clean yourself up. No, he says you need to repent. Repent of what? Repent of trusting in yourself and trusting in the things of this world and trusting in Jesus. You need to realize that your sin is against a holy God and you need to, to hate your sin enough and love this God enough that you want to turn from the sin and turn to Christ. So just repent, trust in Jesus. And then he says, be baptized, right? Identify with Jesus. Identify with his life, death, and resurrection. Make a public declaration that, man, yes, I trust in Jesus. This isn't just lip service, but truly, I want to follow after him. And he says, if you believe in this Christ, you will receive the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. So in verse 41, they do just that. It says, for those who received the word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So now the church is born, and in verse 42 through 47, we see a picture of the very first church ever in the New Testament, and it says this about the first church. This is a great template for the church today, by the way. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which is what we're doing today. It's you know, teaching scripture. And to the fellowship, which is where we get the name fellowship from. It's not just talking about like they had chips and dip together, but this is talking about a union in Christ, like this unbreakable intimate bond. They had this fellowship with one another, right? And they spent time breaking bread and and praying in verse 43. And then all came upon every soul and many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing all their proceeds to anyone who had need. And day by day, they would attend the temple together and then break bread in their homes. Like meal was very important to them. Food was important to rally around. And they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I think we can agree that this is a pretty rad church, right? To use an 80s term. Um, It's a great church. I mean, it's not as good as Fellowship Paragold, I'm sure, right? But this is a pretty good church. And if you keep reading, what you discover is it's not a perfect church, right? Like every other church, like Fellowship and every other church in the city and throughout the world. I mean, this is a messy, imperfect group of people. But what's amazing is through this imperfect people, as you keep reading the book of Acts, in the power of the Spirit, Jesus chooses to advance his kingdom. And this has been his goal. If you've been with us in the story of God, this has been his goal from the very beginning, right? When he created Adam and Eve, what does he say to him in in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 and 28? He says, I'm giving you dominion over the earth. I'm giving you dominion. And when, when God gives us dominion, he wants us to, to rule as he rules, which means he doesn't rule to crush. He rules to bring about life and blessing. And so he says, Adam and Eve, I'm actually the one who rules over this, but you can be a co-ruler under my authority so that you can bring about life and blessing. But as you know, when we read the story in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve fail in this. 
They actually sin, and rather than bringing life, they bring death. Rather than bringing blessing, they bring cursing. But God doesn't give up in the story on humanity. So eventually in Genesis 12, he comes to Abraham and says, Okay, now Abraham, through you, even though you've been a pagan worshiper, even though you're imperfect, I am going to, through you, create a nation, the nation of Israel. And I am going to use Israel, right, to bless other nations. So even there, the whole point was not Israel. The point was raising up Israel to bless the world. However, as we see in the entire Old Testament, they failed. But Jesus, or God, still doesn't give up on the church because then he sends his son, Jesus Christ, through Israel. And where everywhere the Adam and Eve failed, Jesus did not fail. Everywhere that Israel failed, Jesus did not fail. He came and lived a perfect, sinless life on our behalf. He died a death that we deserve to die, satisfying the wrath of God. He resurrected from the dead, and then he sent us his very spirit, the church. He sent us his very spirit for the purpose of rescuing and renewing and restoring his creation. This is why in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, many of you have this memorized. And Jesus' last words ever on the earth recorded by Matthew. He looks out at the church, he looks out at his disciples, and he says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, of all people groups, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Isn't it interesting that Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. I have authority over angels. I have authority over demons. I have authority over men, women, children. I have authority over every single molecule on the earth. Now you go on mission. Why doesn't Jesus just do it? Because he's committed to rescuing humanity through humanity. And so he then gives us his authority by giving us his very spirit so that we can be the agents of change in the world. We have been called, church, we have been commanded, church, to go and make disciples who make disciples. This is the main task given to Fellowship Paragold today. It is why Neil Cole says the following. And by the way, this is going to seem harsh, so please receive this in the tone that I'm, I'm receiving it in. Neil Cole says this, ultimately each church will be evaluated by only one thing, its disciples. Your church is only as good as her disciples. It does not matter how good your praise, preaching programs, or property are. If your disciples are passive, needy, consumeristic, and not moving in the direction of radical obedience, your church is not good. The truth is, you cannot separate your being saved from your being sent on a mission. If you sit here this morning and you claim to be a Christian, if you sit here today and you believe that Jesus Christ is taking your place on the cross, you then are called to, through the Spirit, to take his place in the world. That is why in John 20, 21, Jesus said to his disciples after he rose from the dead, just as the Father has sent me, now I am sending you. And then he breathed the Holy Spirit on them. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, You are a new creation in Christ. And one of the new identities we get, he says in 2 Corinthians 5.20, he says, You are ambassadors for Christ. He says in verse 19, as an ambassador, that you have been given the same ministry as Jesus himself was given. Did you know that? If you are a Christian, 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, You have the same ministry of Christ That is to reconcile a lost world to God. The good news is, not only have we been given the same ministry, we have been given the same spirit to empower us to fulfill that ministry. Guys, listen. 
if you believe what I just said, it should blow your mind. You cannot believe that and sit here ho-hum. It changes your life's trajectory. The reason I planted a church is because of this reality right here. I believe what I'm preaching. We planted this church. The reason that we came in here when I had a wife who was pregnant with our first kid and we had no money or had no idea what to do and only about a handful of people who said, yeah, we believe and trust in you and we'll help you plant a church. The reason we did that, the reason we put everything we had on the line is because we believe wholeheartedly that Jesus called us to plant a church here that embraces the reality, not that we're just to build this building and try to get people in here to hear me yell for a little bit and for us to sing a few songs, but we planted this church so that we could be salt and light in the city and beyond. We planted this church so we could see God's kingdom come and his will being done. We planted the church so that we could see every man, woman, and child have a daily encounter with the real resurrected King Jesus in this city and beyond. That is why we are so committed to to raising up missional communities, to not just having the the, the MCs we have. That's why we started with one, and we're about to have 11, and we hope to see one per thousand people in our city. That's why we planted a church in East Tennessee and give a lot of money away to it to see the gospel going forth there. It's why I want to see eventually, hopefully, us plant a church in Jonesboro and continue to plant churches and, and make more disciples and multiply more missional communities. Guys, this is our hope. This is our heartbeat. And listen, if this dream that we have of making the real Jesus known to every man, woman, and child, if it's ever going to become a reality, here's the thing. We have got to, guys, we have got to fight against this consumeristic worldview that we are being hit with from every single angle. What we have to realize today is when it comes to the scripture, the church is not an event to consume. The church is a community to participate in. The church is not an event that you consume. It is a community that we are called to participate in. When you read in the scriptures, guys, read for yourself. Don't take my word for it. Read it for yourself. The church is not a place. The church is the people of God, saved by the power of God, filled with the presence of God, and sent out for the purpose of God. And that purpose is to rescue, renew, and restore his creation. That's the church. And and, and the reason we have to get this is because I'm guessing if you go to people in Jonesboro or Paragould or Walnut Ridge or wherever you're driving from, Rector, and you were to ask the people there who are members of a church, hey, what is the church? If you were to ask them, hey, hey, tell me about your church, I am betting you nine out of ten of them, if you ask them to tell you about their church, they're going to tell you about a Sunday morning event. Bet you nine out of ten. Hey, uh, can you tell me about your church? Sure, we meet at this place. We, we meet at this time. Yeah, man, we have a preacher, and he, he, he preaches with this style. Yeah, the band, man, it's kind of a contemporary vibe. It's like Zach Williams meets Hillsong, right? Or, or it's like it's a, it's, we, we sing hymns, or we're like, you know, Heavenly Highway type stuff. So we're more of a kind of a country church, right? Or we have this kind of children's program. We have, you know, free coffee. We have free donuts. Like our pastor dresses like, like that's what they're going to tell you. Listen, that's all great, fantastic. But listen, guys, that is an incomplete definition of the church. That would be like you coming up to me and saying, hey, Jared, what can you tell me about your family? Tell me about your family. And me saying, oh, well, we, we meet at 5.30 every Monday night for dinner. <laughs> and uh, we sit around a table that Jordan Lane helped me make. And we got some pictures on our walls. Yeah, that's it. It's like, 
Well, brother, like, like, are you married? Do you have kids? How many kids do you have? What are their names? What are the personalities? What are the passions? You understand, like, that is an insufficient response when you ask me about my family. The same is true. Whenever someone asks you about the church, you run to the Sunday gathering, that's not necessarily all bad. It's just incomplete. If we are ever going to be the church Jesus has called us to be, if we are ever going to step into the story of God and join him in his mission, you've got to realize, guys, and please don't hear this with a harsh tone, but hear this, the church is not primarily an event that exists for you and your family. The church is a community you are called to participate in for the purpose of King Jesus and the mission that he has sent us on. And listen, I know that goes against everything that the culture is saying right now. I mean, would you realize, like, we live in a culture where we consume, burn, and discard things quicker than anywhere else in the world. I mean, everything's become about consumerism, even Easter, right, which we celebrated last week. I mean, I live in a, in a home where I would like to think that we, we talk a lot about Jesus. I mean, I am a pastor after all. And even though I was reminding my kids, like, weeks up that Easter is about the resurrection of Jesus, you know what my kids continue to think Easter was about? Yeah, chocolate eggs and Easter bunny. Yeah. That's what they kept wanting to know. When are we going to go Easter egg hunt? When are we going to do this? That's all they want to know. When are we going to get more candy? And, and on Monday morning after our Easter celebration here, I'm up. I'm, I'm, I'm in the scriptures. My son at like 6.15 walks in. This is after he's probably had like two pounds of chocolate. He walks in and he's got like this handful of Easter eggs that he just begins to like count in front of me. Like almost like he's teasing me. Like he's like one chocolate egg, two. He counts 13 more chocolate eggs. I don't know how this happened in our culture. Maybe Dennis came up with this to make money, right? But even Easter, guys, has become this consumeristic event. It's all about what all can I get? And that starts at an early age. And it's not just with Easter. I mean, this spreads all throughout our culture, all throughout our church. And listen, I'm telling you, the consumerism idea, it is killing the American church right now. It's killing it. Church, by the way, thriving all over the world. Get your head out of the sand in America. Look at what God's doing all over the world. It is unbelievable what all God is doing throughout the rest of the world. But in America, it's struggling. And I think that's because for many of us, we think the church is more like a cruise ship than a battleship. We think that the church is more like a cruise ship than a battleship. And what I mean by that is we think the church is more about a place that we are to show up to be comfortable, to be entertained, And just to have a good time. The church is not a cruise ship. The church is a battleship. The church has been given a mission. That we are to be going on to make Jesus known. Please guys, when it comes to the church, we've got to get out of this idea that man, okay, I'm going to try to find a church. I'm going to get online. I'm going to talk to people. I'm going to find out which one has the best ratings. I'm going to try to find the church that has you know the biggest bang for my buck. We've got to shake this idea. We wonder, why has the church lost its place in American culture? Well, it's because American culture has begun to disciple the church more than the church has discipled America. And as a result, that's why Mark Sayer says the following in his book, Disappearing Church. When the church becomes controlled by consumer culture, the worship service becomes a pseudo-media event. The church building becomes a shopping mall. Christian leaders become Christian celebrities. Teaching becomes entertainment. Salvation becomes self-improvement. Discipleship becomes lifestyle enhancement. Concern for soul becomes concern for self. Church becomes a brand and the gospel becomes a slogan. 
In other words, whenever the church is influenced by the culture, you know what happens? People stop showing up here and saying, hey, what position can I play to, to most make Jesus known? And instead, we start showing up with our scorecard. And we start judging the church. We do it without even thinking about it, right? I mean, maybe if you were here today, you're a guest, right? We walk in, we say, okay, first thing, how are the greeters? Are they friendly? Are they too friendly? Right? How's the demographics? Is it too old? Is it too young? Um, how was the music? Was it too loud? Was it contemporary? Was it old, right? Did I know the lyrics? How's the preaching? I mean, was it, was it a little firm, but not so firm that I got uncomfortable? Did he throw in some humor? Right? How are the children's programs? How are the other programs? Are they gonna, how are they, pastor, going to fit into my stage of life? And here's what we do. We begin to just rate all these things, and then we say, okay, if it gets a B or above, I'll come back. If it's a C or lower, I have a church on every corner that I can hit until I find the one that's just right for me. And listen, if that's where you are, guys, I promise you, no judgment from me. In many ways, you're just doing what you were taught to do. But if we are going to make an impact in the culture around us, if we are going to be the church that we, have been, that we see in the Scripture, a shift has to take place, something has to change in our hearts, where we go from asking the question, what can I get out of this, to asking the question, how can I partner with this church for the purpose of advancing the mission of God. Charles Spurgeon, who's one of my favorite pastors, he preached to like 25,000 people in the 1800s by the time he was 25 years old. He says the following, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Every Christian, either a missionary or an imposter. I wonder this morning, do you believe that? Do you believe today that you are a missionary? Do you believe that you have been saved by God, not just to sit here on some sort of sanctified pillow waiting for the rapture? Just try not to cuss, try not to drink, try not to smoke, try not to watch rated R movies unless it's the passion of Christ, right? Like, do you believe you have been saved by God and no matter who you are or where you work or what personality you have, you have now been sent by God to make much of Him, to see people who are far from God being brought near through God? The gospel of Jesus Christ. If not, glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. You can work through that with us. But if you do believe that, I want to encourage you to do the following. And I just came up with this this morning. Okay? And like I was sort of thinking, the sermon's not real practical. I need to give people some practical tips, know what to do. Um, and so I came up with seven ways to begin to live missionally. Seven ways we can live as a missionary. Why seven? Because the Bible says it's a perfect, complete number. Actually, because I couldn't think of more than seven off the top of my head. And so there's probably a whole lot more, but here's seven. If you want to begin to live as a missionary, start with prayer. And if you're like, oh, of course, he has to say that because we're in church, then you really need to start with prayer. (laughs) Prayer changes things. Um, You need to begin to pray. If you want to live as a missionary, that God will put people in your path that you can begin to live as a missionary to. Plain and simple, God cares more about reaching people than you do. And he'll put them in your path if you'll ask for him to do it. 
Uh, I can give you two just quick examples. One, um, uh, a couple weeks ago, or a few weeks ago, our last prayer meeting, um, my missional community, we were sitting together and we were praying that God would give us an, a, uh, an open door to begin to minister to internationals here in our city. We've been trying and trying and trying, getting closed door after closed door after closed door. And while we're praying, the ESL teacher at Paragold High School sends me a text, says we have a family that wants you to meet them in their house next week. This past week, went over there, met with his family. They want us to begin tutoring with all of their kids. They don't know Jesus. But literally, literally, we had an open door as a result of prayer. We were able to go in and begin to build a relationship with this family. When my wife and I looked to uh, move into a new house, we were not praying for good neighbors. We were praying for lost neighbors so that we could live as missionaries around them. And guess what God gave us? He gave us some lost neighbors. Oh, we know the neighbors right across the street and, and on both sides of us. And, and one of the families is in church. The other two are not. But I've been able to build a great relationship with them. I've got their phone numbers. They've got my phone numbers. They've been over our house to eat. Right? God's given us favor with them. They're asking us to watch their house whenever they go out of town. Right? One of them just a few weeks ago said, hey, would you start going through the Bible project with me? I've never read the Bible before. Would you read the Bible with me? I'm like, oh, I guess I can find time for that. You know? Pray. Two, I would say you need to begin to love. Some people need to experience the good news of the gospel before they can believe the good news of the gospel. You need to love people in tangible ways. That's one of the reasons our missional community, when we get into this, uh, this family this from Marshall Islands, we're not just going to come right in with the gospel. We're going to be in the tutor of their kids. We're going to show them a tangible expression of the gospel and love them in a way that they say, wait, you don't get paid for this. Like, it's not your job. Why would you do this? Because of what Jesus has done for us. Right? Look for opportunities to love people. I love what Luke and Donna did. Um, I love how y'all love Luke and Donna. Um, <laughs> You know, their, their missional community is seeking to reach uh, youth sports or just sports uh, families here in town. And so my son just so happens to be on their team, which I don't know if that's strategic. Like, we need to reach that kid for sure. And so, um, but at the very first practice, why it shows up, it's awesome, right? The Moors have their, these gift bags for every single player on this t-ball team that not only has their jersey and their hat, but Cracker Jacks, uh, bubble gum, and a free baseball. Isn't that awesome? No other, no other coach is doing that. That demands a gospel explanation. That is showing people the picture of the gospel. So we need to be people that are committed to love. A third thing I would say is if you want to live as a missionary, you don't just pray and love, but you need to learn the gospel. We don't just want to show people a picture of the gospel with our hands. We need to learn to share the gospel with our mouths. Um, in Romans, I believe it's chapter 10. Let me turn there. You don't have to. Romans chapter 10, uh, verse 14, it says, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Guys, we are all called to be preachers. Not necessarily up on a stage, but we should all be able to sit across the table from someone and share the gospel. If you don't know how to share the gospel, talk to your missional community leader. Come talk to me. We'll do what we can to help you learn how to share the gospel in just 30 seconds with somebody. Fourth thing I would say is you need to learn your story for the purpose of being able to share your story. In John chapter 9, Jesus heals a blind man and then he sends him out. And people begin to come to this blind man and be like, wait, wasn't he the guy that was blind, but now he can see? And they're like, what's up with him? And they begin to ask him all these questions. And guess what? He doesn't know all the answers to the questions. But what he does say is, look, I don't have answers to all your questions, but I know this. At one time I was blind, and now I see. And the man who healed me, his name is Jesus. You don't have to know apologetics. You don't have to know systematic theology. You don't have to know biblical hermeneutics. You don't have to know a whole bunch of stuff. If you have been saved, you have an incredible story, and God will use your story to impact the lives 
of others. Learn how to share your story. The fifth thing I would say is if you want to live as a missionary is learn to create margin in your life. Some of us are so dadgum busy that we don't have time to even have interactions with other people other than like our wife and our kids and the people we work with. I was convicted of this this past week, and so what I decided to do, and Adam and I have been talking about this anyway, is like I said, you hold me accountable. Brian, we talked some about this even at Fight Club. Hold me accountable to create more margin in my week, to not always just try to cram as much stuff as I can in, to create margin in time where I can just be sensitive to the spirits working in my life. And so on Friday, I said, okay, I've got a little time. I've got about five to seven minutes. I'm just going to walk back and forth down Pruitt Street here. And I take off walking, and I'm telling you guys, I'm walking, and before I even get to the end, a guy comes out, and he just, I don't even remember how we got in the conversation. I was like kind of ambushed, to be honest. And so he comes out and just begins to share with me his whole story, finds out I'm a pastor. Long story short, I got an opportunity to share the entire gospel with this guy. Couldn't have happened if I did not have margin in my life, space there where I could actually interact with other people who don't know Jesus. The sixth thing I would say is if you're going to live as a missionary is you have to learn to listen. Listen to the Spirit, but also listen to people you work with. Listen to people you're playing alongside. Listen to your neighbors. Everybody, including us, is listening to and being shaped by a dominant story in their life. A lot of people are living out of step with the story of God. They've created, they're binding to their own version of a story. Listen to what that is. So then you can begin to speak the good news of the gospel into their story. And then lastly, what I would just say, and I say it all the time, if you want to live as a missionary, get involved in a missional community. The church is the body of Christ, not you as an individual. Therefore, if you want to show the most accurate picture of Jesus to other people, you need to be in community with other Christians. Jesus said, by this, the world will know you're my disciple by the love you have for one another. That means that Jesus assumed we would be loving each other around lost people, and people would therefore see that, and it would demand a gospel explanation. Now, when you look at that list, you might say, wow, that seems like that might take some work. Yes. Guys, I promise you, it would be way easier, way easier to just show up here each week, get a little Jesus, and then go pursue our own American dream. Way easier. But listen to me carefully. You would rather die surging ahead than drown in a crowded sea of apathy. One of the most heartbreaking things for me as a pastor is to sit back week after week and watch people settle for the status quo. To watch people who claim to be Christians try to fit God into this box, try to compartmentalize their faith, and try to redefine for themselves what it means to be a Christian and the church that Jesus has called us to be. My encouragement to you this morning is, listen, guys, please listen to me. We're about done. Please don't waste your life settling for a leading role in your little, bitty, finite story when you have an opportunity to join God in his grand and glorious and eternal story. John Elridge in his book Sacred Romance writes about this and he says, in the postmodern era, all we have left is our small stories. Our role models are movie stars. 
And the biggest taste of transcendence is the opening of ski season, or you might say baseball season in our culture, or lake season. Our best expressions are on the level of have a nice day. The only reminder we have of a story beyond our own is the evening news, an arbitrary collection of scenes and images without any bigger picture in which they fit. The central belief of our time is that there is no story. Nothing hangs together. We all have bits and pieces and random days of our lives. Tragedy still brings us to tears. Heroism still lifts our hearts, but there is no context to any of it. Our heart is made to live in a larger story. Having lost that, we do the best we can developing our own smaller dramas. Look at the things people get caught up in. Sports. Politics, soap operas, rock bands, desperate for something larger to give our lives transcendence. We lose ourselves in the smallest kind of stories. We live in a culture where people all around us are giving themselves to leisurely pursuits that, guys, honestly, in the end, will not matter at all. Please don't settle for a lesser story. A lesser story that says that your success is determined by how much stuff you possess. Don't buy into the lie that the biggest story you can find is on Netflix or ESPN or in pornography. Guys, today, this is a true story. And you are being invited into it. You are being invited today, if you have breath in your lungs, into an unstoppable world-changing mission. Honestly, what could be better than that? What else would you rather give your time, your talents, and your treasures to than this? I was reminded this past week of uh, a story of Steve Jobs in 1984 where he was trying to recruit John Scully, an executive from Pepsi, and some of you heard me tell this story before. And he kept on trying to recruit John Scully to come to Apple to join him. And Scully says, no, I'm not interested. I'm comfortable where I am. I like Pepsi. It's a great, great position, great pay. And finally, Scully did go over to Apple, decided to join Steve Jobs. And in his little biography, they were asked, like, what, what was the shift? Like, what made you jump from Pepsi over to Apple? And he said, well, it's easy. He said, one day, Steve Jobs and I were at the same party, and, and Jobs came up to me, and he said, he looked at me, so I'll never forget it. He said, Scully, you want to spend the rest of your life making sugared water, or do you want to join me in changing the world? Scully said, I want to change the world. And Apple did, right? They began to put a dent in the world for sure. Guys, the good news is today we're being invited into something much greater than what Apple is doing. And Jesus says the same thing that you do. He says, you want to spend the rest of your life doing this? Or do you want to join me in changing the world? Will it be hard? Yes. That's why Jesus said you'll need my Holy Spirit. Will it cost you something? Absolutely, it'll cost you something. But as Jim Elliott, one of my favorite missionaries, once said... He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 24, and we're done. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he forfeits his soul? Maybe some of you this morning, you're living for the world. You're trying to gain the whole world. Maybe for some of you this morning, the church is just an accessory to give you your best life now. 
And as a result, you sit here today, and I would say there are some of you who are exhausted, you're burnt out, you're bored, you're unsatisfied, and you really kind of feel the sense of hopelessness because you know that the thing you're pursuing, that if you can get it, whatever that is out there, you can't even guarantee, first off, that you will get it, and that secondly, if you do, that it'll even give you what it is you're longing for the most. Today, I invite you, stop trying to build up your kingdom Join Jesus in building his kingdom. Surrender your life to him. Surrender your life to the one who before he ever called you to go on mission for him, he went on mission for you. And he lived a perfect sinless life that you could never live. And then he, he died a death that we deserve to die. He, he, he lost everything for you and me so that we can find everything we need in him. And then he rose from the dead, proving to us that even death itself cannot now rob us of the life that each of us are longing for in him. If you've never trusted in this Jesus, I pray that you do today.